Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love your lovely name. We love your grace that saves us, that makes us whole. God, that makes us right before you. Lord, that because of what Jesus has done, we will on high dwell with you. Because we are your church. The church you have saved and bought with your own blood, your own precious blood. God, now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would bless its reading and hearing, that you would help us to see and to understand uh, who you are and what you are calling us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get started, let me say a very, uh, a very heartfelt thank you. Uh, this, is a, this is a fantastic, a, a great church to serve because it is a church that loves its people and especially loves its pastors very well. Now through two surgeries, uh, you have sustained our family. Uh, thank you for all of the food you've given us, all the support that you've given us, all the love that you have shown us. Um, thank you very much uh, for, your, for your love for us. So as you can see, my wife is in the back. She's here. She's standing. So uh, whether she should be or not, to her, but she's here. So um, we are we are continuing our, our our series this summer through gospel and law, looking at the Ten Commandments. And so, if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter twenty. Jake was nice enough to let me uh, kind of set the schedule for this series, and I. I didn't realize at the time that that meant that I got the longer and more controversial commandments. So maybe there was a reason, Jake, let me do that. Um, today we're going to look at the, the second commandment dealing with image making. So let's read Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I'm going to start actually by reading again the introduction so that we understand one more time that God's grace in saving his people comes before he gives them his law. So I'm going to read starting at verse 2, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. May God bless his word as we have heard it and now as we hear it preached. At some point when my children get old enough, I will no longer be able to use them in illustrations as often as I use them now. But uh, we call our new name for Weston, our oldest, is the negotiator. And he, has, he has learned the tactics of, of careful negotiation with his parents. Uh, when he wants to do something, uh, he's heard us say enough now, Weston, these are your options. You can choose one of these. And so then he will in turn propose options back to us. 
okay, Dad, I hear what you're saying. Now here's what I'm saying. Um, usually when he, wants to, when he wants to play my phone, he knows he pl- wants to play on my phone. He likes Angry Birds. Um, he knows that what I'm going to say, he knows probably what I'm going to say, and so he responds by saying, okay, Dad, listen. I'll play your phone right now, and when you tell me it's time to get off, I'll get off. Right? Or, or every, every, every meal is dinner, whether it's breakfast or lunch or dinner. So, um, or what he'll say is, okay, when you tell me it's time for dinner, I'm going to get off. I'm, I won't play it anymore. Um, so usually if we propose options to him, he'll propose a third option that usually fits what he wants to do. He wants to, he wants to take obedience and then recast it in his own preference, recast it in his own light. And we do the very same thing with God. Right? When he, when he tells us, hey, here's, what's, here's what obedience looks like, we like to take that and say, okay, well, but here's what I really want to do. Right? We want to recast it in our preference and kind of give it back to him. And that's what we see going on in the, in the second commandment. All right? It's kind of tied to the first. The first one actually outlaws idolatry. Right? Jake preached last week on how we have no other gods before God. And so the second commandment really then deals with the practice of idolatry or religion, which is God, in a positive way, God tells us how he is to be worshipped. We are not to make images. All right? We are not to make created images in worshipping God. God has the last say-so in how we live and how we worship, not us. And that's really what the second command is driving at, and we're going to see that as we go through. But the, the primary point I want to make is this, that we worship the true and living God rather than the idols and images of our own making. We worship the true and living God, the real God, rather than the one in our heads, rather than the idols and images of our own making. Okay? And first we're going to see that God is the creator, not the created. Did you notice as we read through the commandment, he said, don't, he goes through the creation, all the spheres of creation that he has made, and he says, don't use images from the heavens, from the skies, right? So no moon, sun, stars, don't use those, don't use birds, right? And he goes to the earth, no animals, no plants, trees, rocks, don't worship those. Don't make any images out of those. And then finally, he says, and then under the earth, right, the waters, don't worship, don't use, don't use fishes, right? Somebody got on to me last time I said fishes, right? don't use fish. Don't use sea-dwelling creatures, okay? He goes through all of his creation and says, these things are not to be used in your worship. My image is not found in them, right? I am the creator, not the created. So you can't use the... Cr- you can use the created. Obviously, we're using the created now in worship. We have pews and a building and all that stuff. But we are not to use the created to make images of the creator. Right? He's the one in charge. He's the one who gets to determine what worship looks like. Um, and we actually see this. Israel, Israel violates this right off the bat. Okay? So what happens as you go through Exodus is Moses is on the mountain with God All of Israel hears God speak the Ten Commandments. And then Moses stays on the mountain to basically learn the rest of the law and to learn how to worship. Ironically, at the bottom of the mountain, his people get a little bit antsy. 
And so they go to Moses' brother Aaron and they say, Hey, Aaron, we don't really know what happened to Moses. Could you just make us some gods so that we can kind of get moving? Right? We need, we need gods so that we can go on into the promised land. And so if you'll, here, we're going to give you all, they took all their earrings off and their necklaces and they said, Here, we're going to give you all this gold. Will you make some, some images for us? Make us some gods. And so Aaron, for whatever reason, happily obliges, right? And he makes, you familiar with this episode, right? We call it the golden calf. It's probably a young bull, okay? And then he says, Israel, here are your gods who rescued you from the house of slavery, from Egypt. He uses the exact same words that the Lord used to describe himself. He says, here are your gods who saved you. And then he proclaims a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. And so... It's not just that they commit idolatry, but they actually, he actually takes God's covenant name and puts it on this image. And he says, here's who we're going to worship going forward. Moses is on the mountain getting how they're supposed to worship. He's getting the design for the tabernacle, how the sacrifices, all that works. And in the meantime, Israel is doing this at the bottom of the mountain. Needless to say, God is grieved, Right? And Moses has to intercede for Israel. Otherwise, God is going to just wipe them off the face of the map. God says, you know what? I'm just going to kill them all and we'll start over. And Moses says, don't do that. Moses has to intercede for Israel. Okay? That's what happens at Sinai. It's almost as, almost as soon as they've heard this commandment, they're violating it. And really... I mean, we're, we're a visual people, right? We like to say a picture's worth a thousand words. So, and we've got photographers in the crowd, right? They make their living on pictures. Um, but God is very clear about how he is to be viewed and how he is to be worshipped, and we are not to worship him by making images. The question is, why? But the first thing I want to point out is the, is the principle behind this command, and it's this. We don't worship God the way we want to according to our imaginations. We worship God the way he tells us to. Right? And so this idolatry can include making statues and pictures of gods, tr- treating created things as gods. Uh, and then, and I think the one that is especially poignant to us, imagining and inventing God the way we want him to be. And that usually comes out in us saying things like, well, my God would never blank, whatever that is. I can't imagine a God who would blank. That, that's a violation of the second command if it's not according to his word. We like to reinvent, reimagine God because of our own preferences, because of our own, because of our own sin nature. That's what Adam gave us. We want to recast God in our image. But we don't choose how to worship him, right? He is jealous for his glory. Does that sound, does that sound selfish to you? That God would be that demanding? It, it's not as selfish when we, when we begin to realize how, how people used images back then and how they still use them now, right? Um, see, God, God is not found in what we can make with our hands. And the reason people try to make gods with their hands, one, as an attempt to control God, 
image making is an attempt to control God, right? If you walk through museums, seen artifacts from different idol worshiping cultures, you've noticed that certain parts of those statues may be exaggerated given what that idol was for. Okay, so whether it's um, virility or power or whatever it may be, whoever makes the idol will exaggerate a certain part to kind of claim access to that and to say, I want your blessing, God, in, uh, in, my, in your power. Right? They, they re- and that's the reason Israel probably chose a bull, a young bull. Right, because they needed a God who was powerful. This God had just delivered them from slavery, and so they cast a powerful image. They wanted to focus on one aspect of God's character so they could manipulate that. Does that make sense? That when we try to, make, when we try to recast God, when we want to make an image, it's so that we can manipulate a certain aspect of God that we like. Okay? And we, that's what we do in our heads. When we say... I can never imagine a God who would condemn anyone to hell. We want to take God's characteristic, his trait of love, and make that all-consuming, overwhelming the rest of his character. Okay? Um, this is easy to think of in, when you think through the, through, the Greek, uh, through the Greek gods, right? Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Ares, the god of war. They would take different aspects of life, and they would have one god... And they would worship and serve that God for, for blessing in that particular instance. So if you were going to war, you wanted to pay tribute to Ares. Aphrodite wasn't going to help you. That's what's at work when we try to make an image of God. We're trying to lay claim to one aspect and manipulate that. So image making is manipulation. And so one thing, and actually this is um, in 1 Samuel 4. If you go and read 1 Samuel 4, Israel is under siege by the Philistines. Okay, they are losing the promised land to their enemies, the Philistines. And so what they do is they go and they get the Ark of the Covenant. God's, this, was the, this was the box that the law was held in. This was God's throne. And their reasoning is, okay, if we just keep this with us, we can beat the Philistines. They were basically treating God like a lucky rabbit's foot. Right? If we have this magical God box in our midst, we'll be fine. And they even make so much noise celebrating when the ark comes into the camp that the Philistines are terrified. But what happens the next day? The Philistines crush the Israelites. God allows the Philistines to defeat his people. And then to add insult to injury, he allows the ark to be captured. God says, I won't be manipulated by you. That's that's really the heart behind the second commandment. God won't be manipulated by his people. He's, he's not at our beck and call. Okay? He's, not, he's not the lucky rabbit's foot. He's not the magical talisman that we can manipulate for our own purposes. But more than that, image making is also an attempt to, bring, to make God real and bring him close. Okay? Uh, pay, uh, idol worshiping cultures, right? You'll get the, you get the idol made, you put it in your home, you have a priest come and consecrate it so that it can be the focus of your home worship, right? And your goal is to bring God close, to make God real, to have him right there in front of you. Because this is kind of natural understanding that God is far off, so I need this image to bring him close and to make him real. Um, 
But the thing is, God's people don't need to imagine him, right? They don't have to imagine what he would look like to bring him close because he's already drawn close. They don't have to, they don't have to use an image to have a relationship with him. They don't have to go through a certain ritual to get his blessing because they've already gotten it. Right? So if image making is an attempt to make God real and make God close, we don't need it. We don't have to reimagine God because God's already given himself to us. Right? And that's the heart behind the second commandment. Right? We, don't have to do a, we don't have to do a certain dance or go through a certain set of motions to make God real to us, to bring God close, because he's drawn close by himself and he's given us himself. And yet we often aim to do just that. Right? Rather than listen to the promises that God gives us, rather than listen to what his word said, we aim to manipulate God by what we think, by what we see, by what we feel. We want to recast God in our own image. And the good news right, is that God shows us what he's really like. We don't need images. We don't have to violate the second commandment because God reveals himself. He shows what he looks like. And the first way he does that is he reveals himself in his word. Right? We know him and we know how to worship him simply because he tells us. He tells us right? We have the scriptures that he has uh, breathed out, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. And even here he tells us, right? He tells us what he's like. He says that he is, he is jealous or he is zealous. Jake did a fantastic job last week of talking about God's jealousy and what that means. Right? That like a that like a good father or a good husband or a good wife, they are jealous over the, over the ones who belong to them. A good father is jealous over his children and doesn't want them to go choosing other fathers. A good husband is jealous over the affections of his wife, and a good wife is jealous over the affections of her husband. They don't want them running free to go choose other. God, God knows where our best interests are. God, God knows that our best hopes are in Him, and so He wants us to know. He wants us to know that He is jealous over our affections. He's jealous over His glory. And we should, I, I should explain, when He says that He visits, right? Um, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. That's not saying that God punishes grandchildren and great-grandchildren for the sins of their father, right? What that is saying is that when, when in the home, when there is a man who will not worship God, who, refu- who rejects and hates the Lord, then the odds are he will see that fruit not just in his children, but also in his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, that that pattern can and often does repeat itself. Praise God that repentance is still possible, that that pattern can be broken by His grace. And there are stories of that all over this room, of those not raised in godly homes and yet people who have come to know the Lord. Right? So He is, he is jealous in that way. But He's also jealous in the other direction. Right? He doesn't just give a curse, but He also promises a blessing. And did you see how much wider the blessing is than the judgment? If he visits the iniquity, 
to the third and the fourth generation, it says he visits his steadfast love to the thousandth generation. Again, that's not a guarantee that those who raise their children in a godly home, that their children will necessarily follow God, but there's a pretty good chance, right? And the important thing is that the blessing is so much wider than the curse. That those who love God and serve God, that their, that their faithfulness um, begets a, a great harvest. So God reveals himself in his word, but more than that, God reveals himself in his son. Right? When, when God makes man, he makes man in his own image in Genesis 1. And then, of course, as we know, when Adam sinned, just as we read in our confession of faith today, that, ad, that, that, that image is broken. That image is marred. We no longer reflect the glory that we're made to reflect. See, God's the image maker. We are not image makers. God makes us in his image. We don't make him in ours. And so we are God's image, and yet we are broken, which is why God can make fun of idol worshipers in Isaiah 44. It's kind of, an, it's kind of a sarcastic scene where... He points out, this, the carpenter goes out into the woods and he cuts down some trees and he brings them home and he chops up some to cook his food and some for his God, right? And so he, he basically looks at this dead piece of wood that he's carved all by himself and says, you are my God, save me. That's the folly of idolatry. We who are made in God's image turn and then try to try to make gods out of these other things that we're supposed to lord over. We reverse the process, right? And we demean both God and ourselves when we take something we've made and make it an object of our own salvation. We rob God of his glory, and then we become less than we were made to be. Isaiah says that the result of that is that we become dumb like the idol, that we become blind like the idol, that we become deaf like the idol. We are what we worship. And so how do we escape that cycle? Enter the perfect image, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, right? He keeps the law perfectly. When Satan tempts him to bow down to commit idolatry, he refuses and sends Satan packing. He keeps the law perfectly. He submits his life, his will, his imagination to the will of his father, He's the only man who has ever worshipped God without sin. He's the only man who has been zealous over God's glory, zealous over God's image. And yet he's also the one who suffers for our idolatry. He's the one who takes on himself the punishment that Israel deserved for making their own images. He takes on himself the judgment I deserve for recasting God in my own image. And when he does that, right, as, as Exodus shows us here, right, when he loves God and keeps his commandments, he opens the floodgates of God's blessing, right? He's the one through whom the blessing to the thousandth generation comes. So not only does he keep the law, but then he dies in our place because we don't keep the law. All right, so he not only rescues us, but he's also the one that we worship. He is the true image of God. And so what God left in the shadows in Exodus, 
he reveals in Jesus. Right? Um, the, the Ark of the Covenant, when God describes it, the, the top of it was called the mercy seat. And that is where uh, the blood for the people was sprinkled. That's where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled so that God could accept. Except the mercy seat was empty. There was no one sitting on the seat. Right? The throne was waiting. It was waiting for the true image of God to come and take his seat. And what happens on Calvary's hill? As Jesus says it is finished and he yields up his spirit, the curtain that separated you and me from that mercy seat is torn in two. Right? He opens the throne room. And then we, as we see in, when he ascends to heaven, he takes his seat at the right hand of God. Right? So the true image, true man, Jesus, takes his seat as God, and he bears our sins in the process. Okay? So when it comes to our worship, when it comes to asking the question of, okay, what image can we worship? We worship the image of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we worship pictures of Jesus. Right? And some have taken this commandment very literally and very far and have said there, it is not appropriate to make pictures of Jesus. It is not appropriate to even imagine what Jesus looks like. And understandably so, those, those men, those people that thought that, uh, those people that, that articulated those views in our own confession were fighting against the Roman Catholic Church that had replaced a lot of the word with images. Images of Mary, images of Jesus, images of the saints, right? They had, they had removed the word from the people and replaced it with images. And so the reformers warred back against that and said, no images whatsoever. Okay, so their, their position is understandable. So I think what we have to do is, be, is we have to be careful with what we mean by or how we use pictures of Jesus, okay? Uh, some may be more comfortable than others, but... It is interesting to note that the scriptures are not clear on what Jesus looked like. They do not get very specific. But they are very specific about what Jesus says and about what Jesus does. Now, there are some things as you read the Gospels, as you read Revelation, those books are even meant, I think, to give you a picture, right? When, when John describes Jesus coming back victoriously, riding the war horse, carrying his sword, I don't know how you don't get a mental picture of that. That doesn't mean I know exactly what his face looks like, but that's a mental picture of Jesus. But you know what? It's a mental picture that I can use to worship because it shows me Jesus as he will be. It shows us Jesus as he is and as he will be as the conquering king. Okay? Um, so I just say that as a side note to say we have to be careful with the way we picture Jesus. And that the scriptures aren't very specific. They're, they're not specific about his facial hair, about the way his face looked, what color eyes he had, because it doesn't matter. That's not what we worship. We worship the one who was, we worship the God who became man, who was born from Mary, who grew up, who lived a perfect life, who died a sinner's death, and who rose again on the third day. That's who we worship. That's the true image of God. And if we want to know the Father, we have to know the Son. And so this morning, if you... If you have been worshiping God according to your own imagination, if you, 
If you have not approached the Father through the Son, I invite you to know Jesus, to read about Jesus in the Gospels, to see Jesus as He is, and to come to Him and know Him, and as a result, to be able to worship the Father, to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are not silent, that you have not left us in the dark as to how to worship, as to how to know you. We thank you that you have revealed it. You have revealed yourself in your word, and you have revealed yourself in your son. And that if we have Jesus, we have, we have God. We have you. So, Lord, would you help us to worship aright in the power of your Spirit? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.